all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, welcome. It is good to be back in the studio. That's right. I'm actually in MPB studios this morning. First time I've been back since, um, I guess, before COVID. So it's a long time. So it's good to be back and see faces uh, in person. We've been doing a uh, great job of, uh, I think, of the best we can about doing things remotely and learned a lot from that. But it is nice to be back in the studios. Uh, just makes it a little bit easier for everybody. This is Southern Remedy, the uh, the program where you can call in with any type of healthcare question that you might have. That's right. Anything that might be going on with you. Maybe it's a new symptom. Maybe it's a medication question that you have. This is the time that you can call in. A lot of our Southern Remedy programs uh, tend to be theme-based, but this one is wide open. That means whatever is on your mind or that is bothering you or someone in your family, you can reach us right now with the answers to those questions by dialing 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 Six seven two seven four six four, or if you're not able to call, or maybe if you think of something later, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. So I'll, let's go straight to our first question. We got a couple of people already calling in. Kevin from Ocean Springs. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you for calling. You're welcome, Doctor Jimmy. How are you? Great. What's going on, Doctor Jimmy? Got a question. Now, give me a little background. 330-pound male, uh, went on a diet plan two years ago. I'm now down to 250, so I'm slowly losing weight, and I'm keeping it off. Thank God. Great. Um, now, I developed I developed a ulcer on the bottom of my big toe, left great toe, and they ended up having to amputate it uh, because I developed osteomyelitis. Mm-hmm. Now... With the osteomyelitis, as you know, they give you intravenous drugs, and they sent me home with a pick line in me to hook me up to intravenous drugs every day. And now I'm on vancomycin, and I guess I think it's rosephrin or rosephrin. Mm-hmm. And my question, my question stems from the peripheral neuropathy that I've had for. So many years, I can't even remember how long I can't. I haven't been able to feel my feet. That's why I really didn't know about the ulcer. And my my question is: Can the vancomycin and rosephrin reverse peripheral neuropathy? Because I swear I'm feeling my feet again. 
Yeah, it's a great question. So those are two antibiotics that are specific against bacteria. And uh, oftentimes it's not uncommon with bone infections, which are osteomyelitis, that's the fancy term for it, uh, to use one or two medications like that for long periods of time. You mentioned, I know you know what it is, but for our, the rest of our listeners, the PICC line. So that's a peripheral uh, intravenous catheter that goes in. It's basically like an IV that's a little bit longer and it can stay there a little bit longer to receive therapy. And as you as you know, you can you know get antibiotics for 21 days or even longer uh, to uh, to treat those infections. On, Go ahead. Been on them since the last part of March, and I'm scheduled to be on them until the first week of May. Yep, yep. Long term. Once things get set up in bone, it takes a long time to clear those out. Now, back to your question, though, can it? reverse neuropathy, not by the the how the uh, antibiotics work themselves. So neither one of those antibiotics are have been have any kind of indication for for neuropathy. But what sometimes can happen, and I've heard this in some patients that as that tissue heals and the infection sort of gets, uh, you know, goes down to a level that, that the tissue can heal up, even if you've you know had an amputation, sometimes you do have to take out that necrotic tissue. Um, that you can get some feeling back, and the neuropathy can actually go down a, a good bit. The other thing is if there's other factors that were going on, like uh, diabetes, for instance, if your blood sugar was really, really high during, you know, leading up to that, and now it's under better control, sometimes you can get an improvement in the neuropathy as well. So I, I bet it was from the treatment of the infection, but it wasn't necessarily from those antibiotics themselves. It's the tissue that's healing up around those nerves, and it just allows them to function better. Really? Okay, so so this this feeling this feeling of the per, the peripheral neuropathy going away might just last as I lose more weight and control my sugars. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The the less insult you can put on those nerves peripherally and uh, and you named a couple of those the better they're going to do we used to think nerves didn't heal up like that or regrow turns out they do and uh, it just takes them it just takes them a long time all right doc thank you very much all right kevin thank you for calling and we do appreciate it we're going to go to clinton i'm sorry chris from clinton good morning chris good morning um Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I've been a big guy my entire life. Uh, at my heaviest, I was around uh, 390. Now I'm, I'm just below 300, uh, 295. Uh, I've also had genu valgum or knock knees for the most, as long as I can remember. Uh, I'm scheduled to go to an ortho next month, but I was wondering, can purchase items such as braces or in-shoe orthotics be used to treat knock knees or genu valgum? Yeah, so knock knees is, you know, it's fairly common. Uh, we tend to see it in younger individuals first, but it can be exacerbated, particularly if you're overweight or obese over long periods of time. And then everybody's a little bit different, just like we're all different heights. Uh, so the angle of your legs can be a little bit different too. As far as braces, they can help, but... If you get them over the, you know, just sort of things that you see advertised or go to different places, they're probably not going to work too well. And you really need an expert because what the orthopedic surgeon is going to do is measure those angles out and decide what would be best. Now, there are surgeries to do that. They typically it works better if you're younger. 
but they do what what's called uh, osteotomies. So they take out a portion of the bone on the other side of the of the leg, uh, not on the inside with knock knees, but they'll take out the, uh, an opposite, you know, or, or part of the bone to sort of even things up. But that's a little bit more drastic. And if you can get sometimes just the pain and the uh, you know, the pressures that you're putting on the knee joints themselves with that and other joints, too, because it sort of throws everything off from the ankles back up to the hips um, and sometimes in the back, too. Uh, that that can uh, be improved with some of the bracing and some orthotics. So different different shoes and the angle that your shoe hits the ground can sometimes help. But that's almost you really need somebody that's really uh, knows what they're doing with that or you can make things worse. Right, of course. All right, Chris. Well, good luck to you. I think you're on the right path, though, by going to the orthopedic surgeon and particularly somebody who deals with uh, with Jenny Val- Valgum. Everybody's using these big words today, so that's uh, that's good. They're speaking my language there. So knock knees is, uh, is that uh, for everybody else. So thank you for calling, Chris. <laughs> Let's go to Jonathan, who has a question, I believe, about pain management uh, options. Jonathan, go ahead. Broke my neck in uh, 2011, mm. and from then on, I had been on pain medication. It went started with lower tabs, and I got all the way up till just a few months ago to six, six mil, um, what is it? Hydromorphone. I was taking six of those a day, and before I started pain management, I had to take a psychological evaluation to see if I was. Gonna be a drug user or abuser or sell it. And I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the questionnaire that they give to you, but it asks you a whole bunch of different ways if you're gonna steal it, if you're gonna kill yourself on down the line. Now, over the years, um, the pain just kept, you know I just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Pain uh, painkillers enough that I at the, toward the end I was taking enough that if a, per, a regular person that wasn't adapted to it would. Well, I was told we'd kill a rhino. I stopped taking all of it, whole turkey, because I got, I looked around and said, man, what is going on? Why didn't the doctor pay attention to what was going on with me? I mean, you go in, it was it's like a uh, uh, fast food. You go in, you tell them what you want, tell them what's going on, you pee in a cup, you uh, pass their test, and boom, they give you more pain medication. But they don't sit and ask you, how are you doing? Yep. Yeah. Um, see, they're, they're blaming. I heard that there's talk about going after Walgreens and the rest of them for the opioid problem. It's not that. It's that they don't care. Once you take that psychological evaluation, unless you come in there acting uh, like a loon or you play your drug test, which I always thought was amusing, drug test to make sure you're taking all your drugs, um, it's almost like they're just trying to get you in out. Yeah, you, you bring up yeah. a lot of good points about our problem with opioids. Um, you know, this is really, it's it's been called an epidemic. It really is because so many people die of opioid overdoses. It has gotten a little bit better because we understand more about sort of how to treat this without opioids, chronic pain or acute pain. But um, but you're exactly right. Uh, we, you know, when when opioids first came out, which I was in training at the time, uh, you know, they were 
it was a it, it was really powerful that we had something that could control pain. However, you know, as a as a whole, I think the the industry and the prescribing patterns were such that we really got into some problems and it is really powerful if you take opioid uh, analgesics, uh, and you named a couple of them, but things like Norco or hydromorphone or Oxycontin, um, it, you, you, even taking like a week, your chances of still being on that in a year for whatever cause are incredibly high. And we know, I think you've sort of proved it, and you brought up a really good some of the questions that you, if you're not being asked that by your physician uh, you should bring them up is like, hey, can I get off of these or are they even working? I'll, a lot of times I'll ask my patients, hey, you you know, they'll come to see me and they're already on those. And I'll say, have you ever do you feel like that you're getting any kind of benefit? And it's incredibly common to hear. I really don't. I'm still hurting just as much as I, before I um, before I uh, took them. So. I think it's a you know a good idea to come off of them and uh, and it sounds like you did it a little bit easier than a lot of people have their the way they've been doing it. Um, I will let me make one comment about the drug screens and the like the urine drug screen. It is useful. It may seem kind of odd if you're already taking you know oxycontin or your other opioids that you're screening for that. It's because they, they look at the breakdown products to make sure it's appropriate. And if your drug screen, if, if the urine drug screen, screen, uh, screen was negative, then that could mean that it's been diverted somewhere else. And you're right. I mean, it's, it is a lot of hoops to jump through, but it doesn't take the place of conversations. We talk about that a lot on Southern Remedy, that the most important thing that can happen is for a physician and their, uh, their patients to talk to one another and to listen and to really ask those why questions, I tell residents and students all the time, the most important question you can ask is why, uh, whether it's something, you know, why are you having pain? Is there something else that you can do? Even some, you know, simple things like exercise, massage therapy. For some people, they work much better than opioids. So it is it is something to explore. Uh, hopefully, as a profession, I think we're turning the corner on that, but we've still got a long way to go in some areas. So. Um, you know, Jonathan, I, I hope, you know, that, that uh, this is uh, something that other people have heard and they can bring up with their physicians to say, look, I've been on this a long time. Can I come off of it? And it's always a good idea to do that if you can. Well, I do. Um, I, mine has been nerve pain for long because yep. I broke my neck. And I kept asking my doctor about that. And the I don't know if you know, but for me, opioids were just making it where I didn't care about the pain. The pain was still there. Yep, yep, that's common. And they, they weren't offering me another alternative. Yep, and there are other alternative medications that aren't in that class. You know, things like gabapentin and Cymbalta, and uh, there's like a whole host of other things, and non-medications to help treat it, and particularly if it's nerve-related uh, just doesn't you just don't get very good control of it with opioids. That's just really not the best care for that that type of pain. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about your medical health. Maybe it's yourself. I got some great questions about medications this morning or symptoms, uh, lots of other things that are out there and some great uh, topics already this morning. You can contribute to that right now by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you're not able to call right now, you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. A lot of people don't know that they can uh, check out uh, past programs on our website, mpbonline.org, by searching for Southern Remedy. We archive those. And you can also subscribe to a podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Southern Remedy. Uh, yeah, opioids are a nasty thing. It's They're very useful in certain situations, but you really have to be very selective about that. And Unfortunately, um, practice patterns, and by that I mean the patterns not only of physicians writing those um, uh, opioid uh, narcotics, but also sort of what is expected by the public. Um, it takes a while for those kinds of things to change. And for a lot of people, it's still appropriate for them to be on opioids, particularly if nothing else has worked. But there's lots of alternatives, and uh, it's, it's sometimes it's just not a good uh, not a good idea to uh, to extend that therapy for a long time. Uh, con- also, I should mention too that if you're dealing with chronic pain, there are really good specialists out there in in, uh, uh, in pain medicine. So these are usually people like anesthesiologists that have done some further training. It's very specific. Um, they can do all kinds of things like explore different uh, uh, modalities to try to figure out what type of pain that you're having and then to treat it appropriately according to that. So just, uh, you know, there's lots of different pain clinics out there that don't just give out those pain medications. So it's always a good bet to uh, to ask your doctor if there's any other alternatives like that. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Robert on the road. Good morning, Robert. It's good to good to hear you this morning. Yeah, it's good to be alive. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I uh, I um, went through. Uh, I'm I'm 35 right now. When I was 31, I went through uh, avascular necrosis, where my my hip uh, lost circulation, and um, they put me on uh, oxycontin and oxycodone after um, my my surgery. Right. I noticed. I noticed that um, you know it, it definitely helped at first. You know, the first couple of months transitioning and and stuff like that. But um, 
I noticed that uh, I, I, even as my pain went away, like the guy was saying, your pain's still there. I found that, like, you know, your pain tolerance obviously is going to increase, but I was having to take more and I was feeling more pain, you know. Um, And um, the best thing I found to help, honestly, uh, it it took a long time for me to be able to do it daily, but physical therapy um, is a magical thing, you know, just using your joints using your joints and uh and stuff like that yeah and recently i'm from new orleans recently louisiana is going through uh trial um stages with marijuana mm-hmm. and um i uh tried to climb aboard that and i was lucky enough to get through and um i mean i i can't i can't smoke during the day or anything but at night when I'm climbing to bed, you know, um, after the day is said and done, I, I find myself very relieved. And uh, it's almost like, I mean, I can't drink anymore. That's another thing with opiates, you know, uh, they, they prescribe me um, oxycodone and oxycontin because my liver was too weak to take all that acetaminophen and uh, ibuprofen. Yep. So, um, so they went, you know, to the hot, I mean, at first they were on, I had fentanyl patches before I had, you know, oxys. I mean, I was on everything before they gave me the oxys, but, um, I really found, uh, I mean, it's a blessing. It's only been a month, but I've completely quit drinking. Um, I'm not on opiates anymore unless like I'm in extreme pain. I'll take uh, a painkiller, but, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's magical. I mean, I, I I don't understand it, but you know, uh, a drug that we've had, which is so, you know, I mean, it's, it's common sense to most of us, but, you know, alcohol is like one of the most deadly abused um, substances out there, and and you find something like marijuana, and I'm paying, you know, two hundred dollars a year just to be a part of the program, but um, they don't even tax it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's and those are those are some great things to bring up. It's just uh, you know looking for other modalities, and there is a huge amount of research right now in chronic pain treatment with THC, marijuana, CBD. Uh, so that you know, and doing it in a way that we can really get some knowledge out. I know a lot of people have tried it and say, "Hey, it benefited me." Um, and particularly with the change in state laws in a lot of our states now, and the use of it from a medical standpoint. Um, in fact, there's a conference coming up that I got in my email two days ago about um, just about some some of the data that we have to date about doing that and how we can continue to contribute to what we know about its uses or maybe even, you know, it, if it doesn't work in some situations. There's still a lot to learn about that. But I'm glad you, you mentioned all of that. That was really good. 
uh, and doing it in a way that's very controlled and um, and uh, can give you the best benefit. And you mentioned physical therapy and exercise, too. A lot of people will say, well, my pain is due to like arthritis or it's due to neuropathic pain. I can't do that. Most people, if they stick with it, the long-term control of the pain uh, is dramatically improved. And I should point out, too, that, you know, pain, we used to think that pain, we didn't need to have any pain. Pain's there for a reason. Uh, if we didn't have pain, we'd be burned. If, you know, if you, if you look at some of the old descriptive medical literature around leprosy, which one of the effects of leprosy is you lose sensation. And part of the auto amputation where you lose digits, where you lose uh, people would get eaten by rats, their tissue would, and they wouldn't even know it. Um, pain is there to help us to uh, avoid some things in our environment. And, it, you know, getting rid of all your pain is probably not going to happen in any case. It's, you know, we talk a lot about goals like what do you want to do? Do you want to be able to pick up your grandkids? Do you want to be able to uh, move around and walk every day? What are some of the things that you want to do? How can we manage the pain so that you can get back to doing those kinds of things? So, Robert, thank you. Hey, hats off to you and the hard work that you're doing uh, and and to uh, leave the alcohol alone, alone too. And uh, hope you continue to have good successes with the management of your pain. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about all kinds of different things. If you would like to call in with whatever's ailing you right now, you can dial one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I guess I should say you should push the numbers, not dial. That's aging me and lots more of us. Let's go to John from Corinth. Good morning, John. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Good. What's your question this morning? Okay, well, actually, well, it's turned into two uh, since I listened to the gentleman uh, that made the call before me. I've, I've been smoking marijuana for over 40 years, and, and I'm 63. And a lot of the people I know, which are about my age, or you know, you get more aches and pains when you get my age. And uh, I have, and I've even asked my friend, I said, does this help with your backache or whatever? Because uh, in all honesty, it, it doesn't. And I'm a big proponent of medical marijuana. But now for sleep, anxiety, of course, hunger, 
is is you know wonderful, wonderful. But one of the problems is that federal law prohibits independent laboratories here in the United States to the research. We're independent on Israel and different countries to get the uh, empirical data concerning cannabis, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've had backache pains, and it, it doesn't help. I mean, I, there, it may help with some people, but uh, nobody I've spoken with. Uh, another comment, my original comment was going to be uh, the, the, all the websites and apps and everything like WebMD, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, had, do you think those websites, because I know, for instance, even myself, I will, because I, I don't know if anyone would like to go to the doctor, to be honest with you, you know, and, and I know sometimes I get on the WebMD or ask Google, whatever, about medical diagnosis. Do you think that that is, has had a positive impact on the medical profession or a negative impact? Ooh, good question. Yeah. And that's one we talk about is, you know, in the, in the medical realm a lot. Um, I can remember when web-based information became really sort of mainstream and even in the training programs for physicians, at first, a lot of people discouraged them from from looking up various things, uh, you know, that were like if you wanted to see if a certain drug had been studied to in the treatment of heart failure, for instance. And there was, you know, lots of good medical based online ways to do that. Medline is one that's one of the older ones. A lot of people, if you look at Google Scholar, it'll give you some really good articles on that. But as far as like the the normal information for the lay public. Uh, if you're not a physician, uh, you know, I use lots of different things. There's several different, you know, if I'm dealing with an adult patient issue, a lot of times I'll look on some as a, as a web-based uh, program called Up to Date, and it's not limited to physicians. You could, uh, you could find that yourself. Um, but it tends to be the information is presented to physicians and to medical professionals. So it may be a little bit difficult in some ways to sort of understand some of it. Um, but there are certainly others out there that have been very useful. Um, you know, there's there's uh, healthy, um, healthykids.org that's put on by the American Academy of Pediatrics that has a wealth of information for parents about the developmental milestones of kids, some of the most common things that they can have, and even uncommon conditions and what to expect from a patient or a, a family member of a patient's perspective. And they can, you know, really explain things very well. I've, I tell people all the time, go to that site. You mentioned WebMD, Mayo Clinic. They have one, too, that really has some, some ways to look at that. They're good resources, generally speaking. WebMD actually has some good resources for physicians. What you have to, to keep in mind, though, it's some of these, and certainly if you just Google something, that is worthless. Uh, and can create a lot of problems, honestly. Now, I never, you know, I'm, I, I rarely get irritated. I'm human. I rarely get irritated if somebody asks me a question in clinic about that. Um, but, I, you know, consider your source. Those things that we learned in high school when you were first doing research, we should continue to do that for ourselves, right? And just because it's out there on the Internet doesn't mean it's actually true. And I, I'm fine with pointing people in different directions just to say, okay, that's one source, probably not the best. I would choose this sort resource. Uh, but there are a lot of good ones out there, and uh, WebMD is one of them. It, now, you, you do have to keep in mind that a lot of these are sponsored by external advertising. 
And a lot of that includes drug companies. So there may be some influence in some of that. Um, it's always good to know who's funding what and who's putting that information out because there's, you know, particularly in, in that these aren't free, even though you are taking advantage of it is free. Somebody's paying for it. And it always helps to know who is paying for it. And you can find that information on their sites. But I think overall, it's good and bad. In some ways, it has been great external resources for patients to point them to and say, here's a place to read more about this. If you have a certain disease, there's usually like a society that has put together some really useful information that you can go to and learn more about that. On the other hand, it's been uh, it has increased a lot of conversations uh, around disinformation, and there's a lot of that out there and things that haven't been substantiated. Had a lot of problems with this during COVID. A lot of people putting stuff out there that just wasn't true uh, and hadn't been studied. So there's still a lot of that. It was way before COVID. It'll be after COVID, uh, as long as you know, sort of we have the resources that we have. So. Uh, I would just use it judiciously. If you have any questions about it, ask your health professional. But you, the one you mentioned, I like uh, WebMD. I think that's a good source. All right, this is Southern Remedy. Uh, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I, I'd like to ask you a question that I've been reading about um Euthanasia, and I, I'd like to know what what is your what is your stand on euthanasia? Because I worked in hospitals as an RN, I worked in hospitals, I worked in home health, I worked in a few shifts in nursing homes when I worked for a nursing agency. You know, and th- there are people who won't who don't want to be living like they are. They'd rather be dead. They say I'd rather be dead than living like this. You know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, so, and I know I understand Oregon and California. There, there is a, doctors can legally give you a prescription or something. But why, why, why is humanity so lagging so much? Now, I'm not talking about Dr. Kevorkian type thing because he was bush. He enjoyed it. Right. I'm talking about why is it there? Why can't people die with dignity? Yeah. Uh, huge question there, uh, Sue. Uh, thank you for asking that. Um, dying with dignity and living with dignity, you know, particularly, I mean, if you talk to people who have, uh, you know, conditions like Lou Gehrig's disease is a good example of uh, or severe Parkinson's, the, there comes a point when living, it's on, you know, it's a personal decision that dying or not doing heroic efforts may be the best thing. I guess the difference, and this is just me personally, Sue, uh, and for a lot of physicians is, you know, that I always tell people I took an oath and they may say, well, yeah, but you just, you're just, it's a job, right? Well, no, I don't look at it that way. And a lot of other physicians don't. I think all physicians should look at it this way, that we took an oath to do certain things for our patients and for society. And one of those things is, uh, and the first tenet of in, of good medicine is to do no harm. And um, while, you know, active euthanasia may be seen as a release for some people, and certainly dying is a release from a lot of the pain that they've been experiencing uh, in their illness, I, I think for me personally, it goes against what I fundamentally have have taken an oath to do for my patients in society, which is 
to preserve life. And um, now, I certainly, to alleviate pain and suffering, absolutely. If I can do that through hospice, if I can do that through withdrawal of care, which is not active euthanasia, if somebody is on a ventilator, if they have a terminal illness and they are not going to get better, then I think that is not euthanasia, and that's a personal decision between really about what the patient would have wanted themselves. We call that autonomy, uh, patient autonomy. That's key in deciding those types of issues, and it's different in every single case. Um, But there are ethical principles that we try to go by. And personally, I know a lot of the physicians, and certainly around the world, there's a lot of the physicians that would say, yeah, we need to, that needs to be part of our care is is euthanasia. I personally don't see it that way. And it goes back, I think, just again, to the oath that I took and sort of the things that uh, are important to me in in um, stewarding what's been given down to me in the profession to to society. And you can go all the way back. Actually, the original Hippocratic Oath had something in it about that, that they would you would not give anything to end somebody's life. Um, I know a lot of things have changed culturally, but um, personally, that's what I believe. Now, I don't believe we ought to we ought to leave people on a ventilator or do everything possible uh, for a terminal cancer condition that has absolutely no chance of improving. Right. I think at that point we need to really shift and focus. Really, we should be focusing all along on what's the goal for the individual patient. What do they want to do if they don't want to treat cancer at all? How can we make those final days, years, months, whatever they have? the best for them so that they don't have to suffer and so that they can reach some of those goals. So uh, I could, man, Sue, I could talk for (laughs) hours on this one, but that's a great question to ask. And it's certainly one we're wrestling with in society still. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. We're taking lots of calls, great calls, about your medical problems. A uh, couple more minutes in the hour to get to some of these. But if you had one in mind but you didn't quite have time to call in today, you can always email those to us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Joe from Bay St. Louis. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. First of all, thank you, Dr. Stu, for taking the call. And second, great show. I'm loving it. It's wonderful. First time I heard it, and it's working really well. 
Great. So a little bit, a little bit of backstory. I was injured as a firefighter um, when I was like 32 years old. I'm 50 now. So since then, I've been really active in my medical care, really active in the things I do, and really specifically active in the idea of being an informed patient when I go see my doctor. Lately, though, I've been um, seeing that doctors are less and less liking informed patients. Um, what you talked about a few moments ago, which was like the um, Google online and stuff like that where people get their own remedies, you know, I feel like they instantly look at you and say, okay, this is what you're going to do. And in reality, it's because I've been dealing with the same thing for the last 20 years that I'm used to what's going on with me. And they just kind of like frown upon being an informed patient. And I'm just wondering if you'd hit on maybe, you know, how to be an informed patient and do it right with your doctor because I seem to be getting like flack every time I go there and say, no, I've already tried that, this didn't work, or no, we've already done that, this didn't work. And they seem to want to still go their route and not like that I'm an informed patient. Yeah, a couple of couple of good points there, Joe. So, um, how do you stay informed? Well, and we know this: informed patients do better with every disease. Um, they learn more about things. They learn more more about what works. And you know, I tell patients this often: the best person that knows about the their own illness that they're dealing with is that person not me i know you know about in general but how it's affecting them you know the different things that they've had and everybody carries their own story their own history i might approach now i can't you know promise that every physician every uh provider is going to do this but um, if you, if the patient goes to them and says look i want to provide you with as much information as i can to help you understand what's been going on, and then to give them that history. And a lot of my patients will bring it with them. Like they have this this nice typed up, you know, sort of long history, bullet pointed about what was tried when and medications. And that's useful. I mean, that, you know, shows you what yeah. has worked in the past. And you may go back to that. There may be some reasons for, for repeating some of that, but at least gives the physician a viewpoint of that. And then the other thing is to ask them, you know, if you just say, hey, doc, I, I really want to know as much as I can about my illness. How can I do that? Are there some other places that I can go? Are there some things that I can read? And that really puts them in the driver's seat to really point you in those directions. If you're not getting that, you got to trust your physician. Uh, and if you have up options of other people, I would say seek them out because that's pretty core to that physician-patient relationship. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Joe. Let's go to Ruth in Yazoo. Good morning, Ruth. Morning. Um, I have a question about uh, office visits. Um, I asked the cardiologist secretary the name of uh, one of his uh, conditions that he said I had. I couldn't think of it. <laughs> and she didn't understand me. I, I wanted to know what was the very first thing he diagnosed me with. So she, in frustration, she just printed out my whole, you know, history of my visits with him. And so I got home and read it, and there are things that on that visit that did not happen. It said that we discussed a low-salt diet. We discussed ex, an exercise program. We discussed low cholesterol. That did not happen. <laughs> and so I'm... In fact, he just said, you need to lose weight, and he was rude, and, you know, he uh, he said there's always an excuse, you know, for people not losing weight. Uh, sorry you had that experience, Ruth. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, now you can, you know, there's actually a new law out that uh, patients have access to their notes and a lot of electronic medical records now, they can see those notes after they're written. And I think part of the problem is there's a lot of, in an effort to make note writing quicker and better and decrease the administrative burden that a lot of us physicians are having to do now, we spend a lot of time on notes because we have to, because documentation is nuts these days. Um, But in doing that, there are simple things that you can click that import that language that you saw, that they're probably clicking or they probably include that, that may or may not you know, match up with what happened. And you're right. If it didn't happen, you can legally contact your doctor and ask that they remove that from the record. So that's an option. I mean, it sounds like in this case, it may not be worth it, but you may want to, there's a multiple things there that you may want to like rethink, you know, is this the right person for me again, if you have those kinds of, of options for you, but, uh, yeah, it's a great issue, you know, great point. And, um, uh, there, there are options that we do have now, particularly with electronic medical records. There's something called that we use in Epic called after visit summary, and we can we can put information in that. For instance, uh, if somebody had lupus, for instance, we could put that information in there, and uh, and we could say, hey, read about this later. Uh, this could help prepare you for your next visit. Or there's some information in the interim time about what to work on or what to expect. If you have a kid that's, say, there for a nine-month visit, what to expect between nine months and 12 months of age. So lots of things that can be useful. But, yeah, I, I think this is just one of the, the misuses of the system that, um, you know, is it's the system sort of set up to be, you have to be sort of careful what you do. I still type a lot. It makes my note writing slower, but it's just, it helps me to understand what's going on and somebody else who's looking at my notes to understand what's going on. I was wondering if it might have something to do with uh, having to fit um, Medicare's requirements. Yes. Yes. We have to. We have to do, and and particularly the Medicare annual visits, they require that you have to use a templated note, and it's almost better to just go through that note to have the note up, and for the physician to say, "Hey, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions here, and you know, do you live alone? Do you have social resources? Do you have carpets in your house? All those kinds of questions." So they do require that, or they won't pay for the visit. But, but if the doctor really isn't doing it but saying that he is... They should be doing it. They should be doing everything that they say they're doing in that note. Okay. So right. I'd ask them about it. <laughs> so, uh, so like, give after a visit, give the doctor a couple of days to type up all your notes or something? You, you can ask for it after the fact. that You can ask for those notes um, uh, just to sort of see... I mean, it's your it's your record, so you have access to that. There are certain well, instances when they may not. There's some psychiatric, uh, you know, um, uh, visits and in, in, in inpatient um, that are excluded from that. But that's um, that's that's you know a little bit different. All right, we're going to try to get one more uh, person in. Russell from Meridian. We got about a minute, Russell. So, what's your question? My question is really a suggestion. I would like to see naturopathic medicine be incorporated as a specialty in our regular medical schools, just like cardiac 
cardiac specialist or bone specialist, a pediatric, and there's plenty to And I think, of course, a naturopath wouldn't be very much good if a person came in with a broken up bones in a car wreck. Just like a cardiac doctor would not be the appropriate path. But there, I think there is a place and a method to use and make a legitimate, legitimize a car natural in our total medical delivery system. Yeah, Russell, that, I think that's a great um, a great point. And uh, in medical schools, they are teaching more about lots of things that work in addition to medications. Uh, certainly, diet, exercise, all those things. I think the difference is in the training. We go on what's what we have evidence for, and there's not a whole lot of evidence with some of those naturopathic. It's more like this: we we tried this on a patient and it worked, which we certainly do from time to time. But um, there, it's all in how we're trained. But I agree with you; there should be, uh, you know, more exposure to that as we have the evidence. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.